is Transitional Matters with Chris Marshall. With Chris Marshall. We've gathered the best thinkers from around the world to talk about the most important social, environmental, financial, technological, and geopolitical transitions that affect your life. Transitional Matters is all about bringing the greatest thinkers directly to your ears. The most important trends, megatrends, and transitions that are going on around us. Now zip up and put your headphones on. Broadcasting direct from the UK, here's your host, Chris Marshall. Today I'm joined by Tamsin Astor. So Tamsin, welcome to Transitional Matters. It's great to have you on the show. Taking a little bit of a change in the direction of the podcast. Up until now, it's been very much focused on finance, on the economy, on macroeconomics, everything that revolves around that. But there's a really important part to a changing world which we haven't really addressed on the podcast so far, and that is us, our psychology, our neurology. So this is why I've got you on, Tamsin, isn't it? Because well, I'm glad you haven't invited me on to talk about finance because I would be sitting there going, um... <laughs> <laughs> I might test you. <laughs> so you're not out of the water yet. But no, so your speciality is, I love your title. Your title is the chief habit scientist. So can we just start there. And can you talk us through firstly your background, but also why did you become so fascinated with habits? Absolutely. So my background is in academia. I was a neuroscience PhD at the Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience in London. I finished studying this little area of the brain, looking at the relationship between free will, intentional, volitional action and reactive action in the motor cortex and thought, I don't want to spend the rest of my career studying this one tiny little area of the brain and adding to a body of knowledge. I had a desire to have more of an immediate impact on people's lives. So I then did a postdoctoral fellowship at Washington University in St. Louis, moving to the US, which was in education. And they were looking for science PhDs to come into the Department of Education and look at how professional development was structured for science teachers and how we could bring the museum educators into the underserved K-12 communities. And so I worked with the K-2 community and learned how to do qualitative data analysis, which was so different from my background and like hard. And then I moved to Cleveland, Ohio, my ex-husband got a tenure-track job, and I decided at this point that academia, even though it has a huge amount of freedoms, was still too constraining for me, and I needed to do something on my own. So I started as a yoga teacher and quickly discovered that I like to teach all kinds of people. So I got trained to work also with children on the autism spectrum, working with underserved teen girls, working with therapists, using yoga and meditation was classroom management tools, ways of handling stress. And then one of my children got cancer. And when you are thrown into that situation, the things are pulled back and it's like, what's really important to you? How am I functioning? And I started getting all of these symptoms like sleep disorders and food allergies and weight loss and weight gain. And all of the conventional doctors were going, I don't know, they would do all the tests and all the tests came back negative. So they'd go, oh, just take a sleeping pill. The modern answer to everything. Yeah. Right. It's symptom suppression. It's like, just let's get rid of the pain. Let's get rid of the symptoms. And rather than going, there must be some root cause. And that was what led me to 
the path that I'm now on, which was Ayurveda, which is the sister science of yoga. And it's very much like traditional Chinese medicine. And I started following a lot of the rhythms and routines in that, which made me realize that I was in a state of reactivity, right? I was responding to everybody else's needs around me, not being intentional, back to my PhD thesis, right? Not being intentional about how I was spending my time, how I was spending my energy. And so me being me, when I get interested in something, I get trained in it. So I got certified in Ayurveda and then certified as an Ayurvedic health coach. And that was what led me on the path because the sort of core baseline of the practice of Ayurveda is this thing called your dinacharya, which is your daily habits, your daily rhythms. And I started realizing that when you start structuring your day around your sort of the habits that allow you to do the best in the world, so creating rhythms and routines, which so many of us, myself included, are so resistant to. Don't give me a bedtime. I'm not nine years old. I'm going to go to bed whenever that episode on Netflix finishes or whenever I've finished like having an argument on Twitter or whatever it is that we, we do. Don't that. Absolutely. I think that's really interesting. Just to come back to one point that you just mentioned there in your journey, because I think this is one of the bits which I try and pull out in the book I've just written, Decoding Change. And that is to see change, you have to first step back. And it sounds like there's this kind of this similarity with what you're saying there, that that if you don't understand what your habits and routines are, i.e. you're just externally forced into doing things or externally focused, then again, there isn't that self-reflective process. And the way that the sort of to also talk about it that I mentioned in my book, Force of Habit, is if you operate your life from the shoulds, right? Yeah. You should eat kale. You should go to bed then. You should meditate. Most people are going to be like, don't tell me what to do. Stop shooting on me. I wish this podcast had visual because <laughs> our audience has just missed the expressions you've just thrown at me with that. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think that's one of the big issues is really like stepping back and looking at the context of your life. And that for me was also one of the really interesting things about the difference between how healthy is defined which you need to understand if you're going to then implement change, which is that in the West, healthy means absence of disease. Okay. In the East, healthy is, are you seated in the self? Completely different, yeah. Right? Respect. Like your blood pressure could be fine. You have no markers for diabetes and all the things, right? Your height, height, weight, all of these things are good, but you're just unhappy. And you don't yeah. maybe fall into like the description of having major depressive disorder, but you're just like, there's something deep inside you that's not being fed, right? You're doing work that is not exciting. you. You're not in relationships that are empowering you and getting you engaged, right? So you'd be healthy in the West, but in the East, you wouldn't be. And that to me was a total sort of game changer on thinking about what it meant to be a healthy human. That's really fascinating. That is a, the kind of the difference, as you say, between this, the philosophical stance of the East and West. And yeah, actually, one of the things which I've come to realize is I think one of the most scarce resources in certainly in the Western culture is our failure to reflect, self-reflect. We actually hate time alone to, <laughs> to be with our own thoughts. In fact, joking aside about kind of an argument on Twitter or watching another episode on Netflix, we do almost anything to entertain and distract ourselves from ourselves. So I want to come back to habits because I think before we press record on this, we were just talking about 
how important it is in a fast-changing world to really be mindful of what your habits are, because I don't think it's an understatement. This is a question to you. Is how important are habits in determining who you are as an individual? If you look at some of the data, the data points that I think are interesting, one is that about 95% of our self-care habits, behaviors are habit, right? So that's really important when you think about what does self-care mean to you, right? What was modeled to you by your mother, your father, your teacher, your husband, your kids, right? What environment are you in? So is self-care like eating a tub of Ben and Jerry's ice cream, <laughs> right? Is it drinking a bottle of Chardonnay or is it like, meditating and going for a hike and journaling or going to the, right? What does self-care yeah. look like? And then about, again, depending on the research you look at, it's between about 50 and 60% of what you do every day at home and work is habit. So we know that a large portion of what we do in the world is driven by habits. And the reason being is that the brain likes to create habits because it's an efficiency thing, right? The way that our brains work, if we can, if we do something again and again, our brain is like, huh, let me like let me make an automated pattern here so that you then don't have to think about it every time. And we all know that moment when things get automated because you know you get in the car and you're like I'm driving to the store or I'm going to Tesco or I'm going to my friend's house and you suddenly find you've autopiloted to work or you've gotten the tube, right? And suddenly you're, you're like you've gone past the stop that you're getting off because you're used to going to another stop, right? Because your brain has just gone I know what I'm doing here and you've dissociated a little bit, right? Yeah. The I think that's a really good analogy. The unnoticed sections of life, because you're so used to and familiar. Because if we bring this back to, again, your specialization with neuroscience, we are actually changing the physical structure of the brain when we adopt a new habit or actually any new information or thought, aren't we? Absolutely. And the sort of extra piece that I think a lot of people forget when they struggle with habits, and most of our data on habits cruel or failure is around New Year's resolutions, which is the biggest kind of cultural phenomenon around. We're all going to adopt this new habit of going to the gym in January or whatever the hell it is, right? Or dry January or vegan, vegan January or whatever, is that we don't operate in a vacuum, right? Yeah. And we all think, this is the thing I'm going to do, forgetting that we've got so many external influences, right? We've got our history, we've got the people we live with, we've got all these external pressures that impact our ability to change. And then when we do start taking on new habits, we are changing who we are in the world. And some people look at that and find it terrifying because they're like, hang on, I used to be able to define you based on your habits, based on the fact that you always dated in this way, that you always worked until nine o'clock at night, that you always wore glasses or fill in the blank, whatever the habit is, that you were always 50 pounds overweight. Suddenly when you change those behaviors, the people around you are suddenly having to think differently about how they define you. So they're forced into almost a state of kind of being uncomfortable because I'm guessing actually from their point of view, it's the automated processes or kind of the things which are familiar are now uncertain. Because again, bring this back to like the side that I work in in a very rapid changing world is that's what is the kind of the bit which we get psychologically and cognitively stuck with right. is that uncertainty is by its very nature, 
we become anxious, we become fearful, we can even become helpless and despondent if it goes too far. And it was something that you said just before is we pick up these habits almost subconsciously from, I don't know, our parents or teachers or school or their formative years. But in a fast-changing world, those are the things we really need to get a handle on because the things you and I picked up as habits when we were like 10 do we really expect them to still suit us in the world when we're 40, 50, and so on? Exactly. Absolutely. So in your book, you do a great job of breaking down what a habit actually is. So can I just get you just to explain sure. to the audience who maybe haven't read your book, they should, about what a habit is? So habits have three parts. And the important thing to understand about that is that most of us, when we think about a habit, we're just thinking about the actual action, the behavior. And we're not thinking about the thing that triggers the habit, the cue. And we're not thinking about what we're getting out of the habit, the reward. And that's where most of us get stuck. So why is this important? These happen in different areas of the brain, right? So the cue, the thing that triggers, and the cue can be a person, a place, an emotion, a time of day, a preceding event. Those are the five main cues that will trigger a habit, right? So it's six o'clock. It's time to kick off the shoes and open the beer, right? When I'm with this person, I do this activity. After I floss, I brush my teeth, right? So those yeah. are the sorts of other things, right? And I guess, sorry to interrupt your flow here, but I'm guessing that's also, that's part of our brain trying to take the most efficient shortcut, not do any work. Just right. again, another little rule of thumb going, oh, if A happens, I do B. That's fair. And that's also why, again, me going off on a little bit of a tangent, why when you're dealing with trauma, it can be really hard because identifying the trigger this kind of person, this kind of situation, this kind of tone of voice, these sorts of comments that, you know, are the things that trigger this action sequence based on past trauma, right? So we're looking at the thing that cues it, and that happens here in the prefrontal cortex. Then we have the action itself, which goes into the lower levels of the brain, right? We've got the brain evolved up and forward, right? So the most evolved part of the brain is this bit right here. So the cue, that's happening right here, which means we have access to it. And then the behavior itself is more deeply embedded. So that's where we fall into problems because people are like, I'm just going to change the behavior. But they're not thinking about what cues the behavior. And then what do I get out of the behavior? Am I getting social interaction? Am I getting dopamine hit? Am I getting sugar? What is the reward that I'm getting out of this thing that I've fallen into? And the reward is also in the prefrontal cortex. So if you want to have the most success in changing your habits or in creating new ones, it's looking at the things on either side of the behavior, not just the behavior itself. So I guess that now leads into if we want to start changing habits, we want to focus on the cue and the reward. Right. So the sort of classic example, you've noticed you've put on 15 pounds and you think, okay, what have I done differently in the last three months that might've caused this? And you notice, oh crap, at three o'clock every afternoon, I'm walking to Starbucks and getting a latte and one of those like waffly, one of those like those things you go on the airplanes, a stoop waffle, those like yummy caramely <laughs> waffly things, right? And you think, okay, I've identified the behavior. And then you're thinking, what's cueing this? Yeah. And what am I getting out of it? Cue could be, I'm hungry. I've been sitting at my computer for three hours and I just need food. 
Second could be, I need social interaction. The only reason I'm going to Starbucks is so that I can chat to everybody I'm going to walk past on the way there and have a conversation with the barista about what's going on with the local football team, oh, the weather, or this new Kardashian drama or whatever it is. Because, you know, I've been on my own for three hours. Or maybe it's, you need to move your body, right? Yeah. We're not designed to sit still for hours a day. And actually, the longer you sit, the more your butt tissue breaks down and your butt gets bigger, not in a nice worked out way, in a like decomposing structural way. <laughs> and your liver function starts to reduce. So then you think, okay, these are my three hypotheses. So then you try them out. What happens if I eat an apple, have a cup of tea? Do I stop getting up at three every afternoon? What happens if I go for a walk? What happens if I have a conversation with a friend? So you try out these different stimulus reward pathways and see which one works. And then how would you, so that seems to be changing the cue to a certain degree. How do you go about and actually like go in there and change the reward? Because that seems to be a connected to the action. What you're doing there is you're trying to identify what is the reward that you need. Okay. What is the reward that your body and mind are craving, right? Which is what that last one example was. Do I need food? So the cue is always going to be three o'clock. The question is, what do you need to get out of it? So that could be, so, say, sugar or dopamine or whatever else. Impression, whatever, yeah, right? Okay. okay. So Got it. And so with the reward piece, what I'll often say to people is that if you're struggling to create a new habit and the habit itself does not feel like it's going to give you a reward, right? So for example, going to the gym, if you haven't worked out in months, we all know when we first start working out again, like it doesn't feel good. And then it starts to feel good, right? Like suddenly you find you're sleeping better, you have better energy, your genes slide over your ass a little bit more efficiently, like all of that stuff. But like the first few weeks, you're like, why am I doing that? So that's where you can come in with a reward that is maybe if I go to the gym 20 times in the next 30 days, I'm going to get myself a massage, right? Yeah. So you can start building in kind of anticipated, anticipated pleasure. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or, kind of or I'm going to go in the drive through every morning after going to the gym and buy myself a latte rather than just making coffee at my desk. Because if I do this every day for two weeks, you know, I'm not going to need it. So it's the same way I say this to people. I'm like, I've potty trained three kids. Well, I did like the stars and the rewards and this colored cereal in the toilet to get my boys to aim straight. They don't need that now as teenagers. The reward of not peeing your pants is enough, right? So let's bring this into actual change because that's all well and good. We talked about the parts of a habit and the cue and the reward, but we still as humans come up against huge amounts of inertia to change. And this to me is really important because again, come back to how the world's changing when there's huge seismic shift. This isn't just change, this is like radical social change. And in that environment, one of the things which I think actually led me to even begin my research was this fascination of why we wait until the last minute to get pushed rather than seeing change coming down the road and going, oh, I'll start taking some action. So it, kind of your experience and your view, why do we experience this inertia? Where does that come from? Why don't we just get moving and go, we know this is good for us. Is this come back to this kind of Western versus Eastern view of wellness or is it something different? It's an interesting piece that, so I was listening actually to a Freakonomics episode, which I should share with you, where they're talking about the differences in cultures on six key criteria. And one of them was on comfort around waiting, but okay. it's not. And America, where I live, 
it's like no comfort around waiting. It's do, 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 now, now, now. I want it, want it here, right? Whereas what we think of as the traditional Eastern cultures are much more comfortable around like postponed gratification, right? Yeah. And that waiting. But part of it is that change is terrifying, right? Humans find change scary, even positive change. And I think that's one that most people find really fascinating. So even things like buying a home that you've dreamt about, getting married, having your first baby, all those things stress out your nervous system like going through a divorce and a death and a job loss, right? They all affect our nervous system and our mind-body relationship in the same way, which is like, ah, everything's going to be different. Ah, la, 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 I'm not going to do the thing, right? Yeah. So part of it is that change is stressful, which is why habits are hard to change, right? That's even in the definition. Habits are, in their definition, behaviors that are difficult to change, right? So... One is fear, I think. Yeah. And then second, I think a lot of the time we are not really tying what our day-to-day -day habits, our day-to-day -day behaviors are doing to the thing on the other side. What is that bigger vision? Where are we going to get? We talk about like our zone of comfort. Like when I operate in this space, I know what's going to happen. And that's one of the reasons why we have in culture stereotyping and prejudicing, right? Because we try to pigeonhole people based on, oh, they look this way, they're going to vote this way, they're going to eat this way, they're going to think this thing, they're going to be anti this, pro that, et cetera, et cetera, right? And change stirs all of that stuff up, right? And then I think on top of that, what I would say is, with my Ayurveda background, is that different Ayurvedic profiles find change more or less comforting. That's interesting. I think I'm going to say almost the same thing, but in a slightly different way. The way that I came across it, change is that vehicle of uncertainty. And we just hate uncertainty. Mm. <laughs> in fact, when you start looking at the research, the human brain will do almost anything to get out of a condition of uncertainty, even make stuff up. It seems to be that changing a habit is exchanging something you're familiar with, even if it's it's not great <laughs> for something that you're unfamiliar with, which is can be terrifying, scary. It's really interesting. We see the data even in things like if you look at sort of cardiac patients who've had strokes or have had heart attacks, and they've basically been told by their doctor, you need to work out, stop eating meat, stop, cut down your alcohol consumption. This is a matter of life and death. The adherence to those behavior changes, even when you're talking about death, is really, really low. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> even that's not enough of a motivator. Yeah, the fear of uncertainty. I no, absolutely. So I'm going to bring this round to something else that you talk about in your book. And I love this, kind of this use of what I'd call prospect theory. The fact that we kind of weight negative situations, so losses, far more heavily than we weight the kind of wins i've done a really bad job of explaining that <laughs> but yeah we basically weight we weight losses far more than we take pleasure from gains and you have a really interesting way of using that to leverage change in your book where you talk about swapping it around rather than going oh if i'm gonna i don't know adopt this new skill or take this new course, I'll go and reward myself like this. You suggest we flip it around and almost set a punishment for ourselves. So, yeah. If we so don't the carrot will stick. Yeah. So the carrot stick. I think part of it is so evolutionarily we're designed to look for what's not working. 
right? Yep. We still, even though we've had this massive, like you think about the last 150 years, what we've achieved as humans, right? It's mind blowing, particularly like 1900 to 2000, right? Our brains are still like scanning the savannah for the woolly mammoth or the saber-toothed tiger, right? Yep. Like, where is there danger? Where am I not being safe? So that's why most people, when you ask them, how are they doing? They're going to find all the things that they've done wrong, right? List all the places that they're failing. List all the things that they haven't done right. Yeah. So the first thing there is, so like, is that you can also retrain your brain, right? Because when you get into the energy of bragging and looking for the good, you're actually increasing the flow of nitrous oxygen in the body, nitrous oxide, which opens up all the arteries, makes all the blood flow faster, and you feel better, right? You start to get the hormonal hit of, yes, but it's a practice. I'm going to get this lady's name wrong, but I'm sure it was Amy Cuddy that oh, she yeah. talked about the kind of like the superhero pose. Yeah, the power poses. Yeah. Is this kind of similar? Yeah. So, you know, what's interesting about her research is that it has never been able to be replicated. Okay. So even though a lot of people do it and a lot of people have huge anecdotal positive energy around it, and I found it too, particularly if I'm going into a very male dominated space, I'll be <laughs> before I take charge of a stage or whatever. There is a lot of research on the hormones around bragging and getting into that positive energy. And the interesting piece on that is the sort of the cultural energy around, we're not supposed to talk about how good we are. Yeah. We shouldn't be tooting our own horns. You were mentioning reading my last newsletter. I like sat on that newsletter going, I can't send that out. It sounds really braggy going, look at here, I'm going to be talking here. Look, I'm going to be talking here. Sign up for this workshop. And then I'm like, dude, you run your own damn business. You've got to get out there and share where you're speaking and what you're doing. But I had that total like, oh, that's going to come across. But it's, yeah, it feels uncomfortable. Yeah. So we have to train ourselves into that energy of looking for the positive. But yeah, I've got a client right now. He's a young male entrepreneur and he likes to get up and start every day with meditation, with two hours of meditation. Like he's right. very committed to his meditation practice, but because he's in a startup mode, a lot of his client work and interactions are late in the evening, which means it's then hard to get up. And, and so we've had a lot of conversations about the stick versus the carrot. And in some of my trainings, we've, cut, we've talked about different ways of doing the stick. What would that look like? So one, the, my most favorite one is the writing a check to an organization that you find so spectacularly abhorrent to your value system. And yep. if you don't do the thing you're going to do, you have that trusted person who will mail that check for you, <laughs> right? <laughs> Just to get ultimate leverage over yourself. I love that. Or have an automated tweet that goes out with embarrassing pictures or really uncomfortable comments, you know, that if you don't get up out of bed and turn them off and get on with your day. They're going out to the world. Exactly. I've got, this leads me, I've got to now ask, where's the checks that you've written to? What are the places? I, I, need to, I need some examples. For me, I generally find rewards work better for me. But for me, when I'm doing it, it would be organizations that are at what in America they call pro-life. So okay. organizations that inhibit women's access to healthcare and abortion, right? Yeah. So that's the thing that I find extraordinarily abhorrent because women are always going to need abortions and having denying access, basically what you're doing is you are stripping the people who are the most disenfranchised from access to, and it also impacts ectopic pregnancies. That's the sort of the way that the law is now written. 
in the US, which, so that for me would be it. Yeah, yeah. I can see that being quite motivating. Yeah. So again, something else that you touch on, and this is something I've come across in my kind of work as well, is this Japanese concept. I don't know whether I'm going to say this word in the right way, but Kaizen is the way that I've always said it. But the kind of this process of taking small, continuous steps to improvement. How do you kind of put that? Because you, as I said, you bring it up in the book, but how do you make that work when you're dealing with clients or? The US first came across it with Toyota. They started bringing it into their manufacturing plants. And for me, the way I use it is this idea of these small incremental changes. For example, if I've got a client who I'm a big fan of the morning and evening routines, because a lot of the times we can't control our days. And so creating a borders at the beginning and the end of the day where you take control and you do some of the practices that suit you is something that I encourage all my clients to do. And also it's really also important if you do like unpredictable work, like shift work, like you're a doctor or a nurse and you're working. So start and end the day, even if your day starts at 10 p.m. So for example, if you've never had a meditation practice, which I encourage all my clients to do, because meditation is really about understanding your own mental habits. Where does my mind go when I'm not filling it? Back to that comment earlier of like how we do everything we can not to face our own internal world. Telling somebody to sit for 30 minutes every morning is just not going to work. I'm going to set somebody up for failure doing that, right? So for that, I'd say, Start by, can you just sit for a minute without doing anything, right? Yeah. No music, nothing, just sit for a minute, right? Do that for two days. Let's go to five minutes. Let's go to 10 minutes, right? So it's really about setting somebody up for success. So little changes, right? Somebody who has a really shitty diet, right? Or what the Americans like, the sad diet, the standard American diet, which is mainly processed, very high fat, like trans fats, not healthy fats, very high in processed carbohydrates, very low. Like I think the Americans eat 8% of their calories from plants and fruits from plants. Wow. So I'd say, okay, let's make a little shift there. Can you make half your plate vegetables? Yeah. Rather than saying, get rid of the fries, get rid of the steak, get rid of the little, whatever it is, get rid of the burger. Can you make half your plate vegetables? So let's just start with a little change. Or can you eat a whole food meal every Monday night, right? So doing some little change rather than you're going to bed at midnight, we're now going to start going to bed at 10. That's not going to happen, right? So let's make it small, right? And so that sort of the theme really is what makes habits stick long-term is consistency, yeah. not so much the amount of time you spend doing it. So for example, that morning movement, right? If you start on meditations, maybe you're starting with one minute, maybe you're starting with one press up because you haven't worked out in ages, right? And then you expand it and you expand it and you expand it. But then you have that flexibility in place that say you're getting on a plane at six in the morning, you still want to do your morning routine. So maybe you'll go back to doing journaling one sentence, one minute of meditation and holding a plank for a minute. Still got your morning routine in, but you're just making it a little bit smaller. So the accordioning of it, right? That's a fascinating kind of way to look at it. And I guess this could help people in terms of, again, bring this back to a changing world. It's a huge ask to say to somebody, okay, I'm going to give you an example. I was in London a few months ago and I had to go in to one of those completely automated Amazon stores because I was just fascinated about this idea of walking in and just picking up stuff and walking out. And I did feel like a shoplifter, I'm going to be honest. 
in quite a cool way. I'm not sure what that says about my personality, but I came out thinking, oh my word, how many people who are working in kind of supermarkets today are looking at that and going, our jobs are probably on the line. I'd say not many, but the few who are, how many are actually doing something to take a proactive approach to do something? Now, changing career is like what you're saying. If you want to move from going to bed at midnight to 10 p.m., that's too big a move. It's daunting and it's uncertain, like we've just been talking about. But I'm guessing using these micro steps could be something that just puts in place, I'm going to learn something new about this industry every day or whatever. Right, because I think this idea that we can constantly learn and constantly evolve is really important to humanity. But a lot of people get stuck, you know, either through living with extreme stress and trauma and just surviving, recognizing that, you know, you and I come from a place of white middle-class privilege, as it were, (laughs) right? Yeah. With that lens and that just having the ability to have the mental headspace to go, what could this look like? How could I do this differently? But yes, absolutely. The little small changes, the can I take one course, one class, one thing? Can I even just spend a few hours on YouTube this weekend looking at what potential options I could lean into? Absolutely. I think that is one of the amazing things about the modern world we live in. Yeah the abundance of information and yes we have it's a double-edged sword it re- i mean it really is from a cognitive point of view it's like you can just burn yourself out in the first 10 minutes of a day if you really wanted to but we've also got this incredible reservoir of information and the ability to learn new stuff normally the, the kind of just the cost of an internet connection yeah that's something amazing really that I think is overlooked. Yeah. Uh, So as you're a meditation teacher, as well as a yoga teacher, everything else, I have got a question. And that's, in your view, what's the difference between meditation and mindfulness? For me, I often hear these two terms intertwined, and they both seem to be doing the same objective of stepping back, but they're quite different as well. Yeah, they are. So I am trained in, I'm a Buddhist, and I'm trained in the Tibetan Buddhist meditation lineage. So the difference really is, so the definition of mindfulness is the state or quality of being mindful, right? It's about paying attention, being aware, right? Whereas meditation is the act of meditation to sit in contemplation, right? You can do the dishes mindfully. You can read mindfully. You can walk your dog mindfully. And what that is, you're fully paying attention. You are fully aware. You are fully engaged, present, right? In that event, right? Whereas meditation, you are literally just working with your mind. And one of the ways that I like to talk about it. So if you look, so the language, ancient language of yoga is Pali. And a lot of the Buddhist texts and meditation texts are written in Pali. And the word for meditation in Pali is gom, which means to habituate, to familiarize, right? So often people have this idea that meditation is somehow connected to the Muslim faith or the Hindu faith or whatever, because it comes from those countries where those religions are, right? But it actually is just really, it's mind training. And so 
one of the things that you can think about with mind training is what you're really doing. And this is the way that I explain the kind of baseline meditation, which is not when you're given something to think about and do and meditate on, right? Because there are particular meditations where you're meditating on love or on kindness or on people or on connections, right? When you're doing the basic meditation, which is when you're sitting and breathing, thoughts pop into your head and you're going, I'm here, breathe. What you're really doing is playing with the space between stimulus and response, right? Okay. So whether the stimulus is the dog barking, the dishwasher beeping, your kid going, mommy, 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 or whether it's the internal stimulus of, oh, why did I say that to that person? Did I pay the gas bill? What am I going to do? Oh, life's going to be so much better when, okay, now I'm going to extend that gap between the stimulus and how I respond. I guess it's also that process of learning that we're, we're not our thoughts, that we're not attached to them. Because again, coming back to the, the issue of no self-reflection, mm -hmm. is not only do we not stand back enough to see how things are changing, we're so myopically focused, but we get so carried away that we unfortunately believe everything that we think. I have a post-it on my desk that says, don't believe everything you think. Because that is so true, right? Yeah. And, I, and part of that is the we have a tendency to identify too much with our emotions because we're not taught about emotions. Like Brene Brown's most recent book, Atlas of the Heart, which, where she studies 7,000 people, she says the majority of people could only recognize three emotions in themselves and others, right? Only three. And depending on what research you look at, we have somewhere between 19 and 45 different emotions. So the fact that most of us can only recognize three, right? So I don't know whether this is a useful way to think of it, but one of my meditation teachers used to say, we're the sky and the weather are our emotions. Okay. Sometimes they're clouds, sometimes they're sunshine, sometimes they're like massive thundering storms. But that's not who we are. These keep moving through us. So you're not, I am an angry human, which is what happens to a lot of us, right? We don't let our emotions, emotion move through us. We let them stagnate because we're not taught to label them. We're not, we're taught it's not okay to express them. We're not taught to tools and habits for how to get the emotions out of us, all of that stuff. So then they become concrete and they become moods. And then it is rather, instead of you're having an angry moment, you're having an angry feeling, you are an angry person. Help identify as an angry right. person. Yeah. Okay. That's amazing. Tamsin, we have covered so much. And it is, it's been fantastic. I think we could probably keep going and going, but I'm going to draw a line in the sand here. And I'd love to get you back on the show at another point. And we'll go into the hundreds of things that we haven't touched on, but Perfect. finish off, where can people find out more about you and where can they get that information and buy your book and everything else? So you can find me on my website, Tamsin Astor, T-A-M-S-I-N-A-S-T-O-R.com. I'm also on LinkedIn and Facebook. Super. No, thank you so much for being such a great guest and bringing the world of habits to transitional matters and the changing world around us. It's been great. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for hosting me. You've been listening to Transitional Matters. Make sure to like, subscribe, and sign up to the show's email newsletter by going to chrismarshall.uk. And we'll see you next time for more from the world of mega trends and transitions.
All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute an offer or recommendation to buy or sell any securities. Content should be treated as educational and general and should not be seen as a recommendation to use any particular investment strategy.